Hello everyone and welcome to Mental Health Much. My name is Vincent and I'm a French-Canadian psychotherapist living in Toronto. As a therapist, I'm fascinated by anything that has to do with mental health. So on this podcast, I invite friends and colleagues over to talk about it. Being a gay man, I'm obviously more interested in anything queer related, as well as topics that are pro-feminist, pro-trans and anti-racist. This week, I'm meeting with Ash to talk about addiction, sobriety, and creativity. Hello, Ash. Hello. Thanks for coming on my podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. Normally, in my little intro, I say I invite friends and colleagues over, but we don't know each other. <laughs> um, so thank you for trusting me with that. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Ash, you are a queer writer, and you are the author of the now-published book Run Riot, 90 Poems in 90 Days. And I'm really excited to get to discover more about that process. And I really want to thank our friend who connected us because I'm really excited to have you on the podcast. As soon as I saw the title of that book, I was like, that's amazing. That's awesome. <laughs> Do you want to tell us a little bit more about this book? I would love to. I wrote Run Riot while I was in a residential treatment program in Vancouver for alcoholism. And I didn't intend to write the book when I started out. I just was in treatment. And every morning I woke up and I wrote a few poems. And then through the process of treatment, they um, they came together really well. And I kind of, I, I left treatment and I was like, wait a minute, this would make a really neat collection um, that I that I think would speak to a lot of people who uh, either have someone they love who's going through treatment or themselves are, are uh, dealing with an addiction. So I put it out there into the world, and a few uh, a year later, it's um, it's a real thing in the real world. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's pretty amazing. Yeah, when we met uh, met each other for the first time for our pre interview, you were saying the book was just freshly freshly <laughs> out in the world. Very freshly, it's very very uh, odd to hold it in my hands and be like, "Wow, this is a book that I wrote," um, <laughs> but it's also amazing. And so far, it's been like really positive reactions from people about it. So it's super exciting. That's amazing. There will obviously be a link in the description below for people who want to find you and people who want to find your book. So Ash, obviously, you already said a few things about yourself, like <laughs> being a queer writer, having gone through sobriety. But for me, who doesn't know you that well, and for our public, tell us a little bit more about who you are. I am. Well, I'm uh, I'm 32. I live with my partner, Kate, and my dog, Charlie, in Toronto, in Parkdale. Um, I've been sober, like I said, for two and a half years now. And um, I'm a writer, but for my day job, I'm a carpenter. So I build houses. Okay. You like building things, whether with your words or with your hands. Yeah. <laughs> Is that how you describe yourself to people? Or did I just make that up? And you're like, oh, that fits. That, that's how I should describe myself to people, for sure. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to use that from now on. <laughs> <laughs> you, can, you can take it. It's all yours now. Yes. And Ash, I ask this question to everyone, and I always get very interesting answers. What is your relationship with mental health? Yeah, that's, that's a good question. I feel like I have a pretty intense relationship with mental health. I think that it switched uh, recently 
flown before when I was uh, not sober. My addiction, I, I had this like fear of mental health. I really associated it with mental illness. I didn't see mm-hmm. like, I didn't see mental health. I just saw mental illness. And it's something that's prevalent in my family that people struggle with. So to me, it was just kind of dark and scary. And I wanted to like push it away. And then becoming sober, I'm like really realizing that those are two different things that like mental illness and mental health are separate. And you can be healthy with with whatever you're dealing with, whether it's like anxiety or trauma or depression or alcoholism. There's like mental health is like this this way of, of making that doable, livable. Now I'm like very excited about mental health. So you were saying at first you were almost scared of it and you wanted to just push it away like it didn't exist? Yeah. Yeah. I wanted, and it was definitely something to be kind of like brushed aside or ignored or like even like made fun of or hidden in any way possible, really. You know, this is this is only episode number five, but I'm starting to hear this pattern. Maybe I'll need to change my my question for season two, because I'm starting to hear a pattern of a lot of people when they were younger, they were like, oh, mental health. It's this thing that other people have that's like this scary thing. And then I grew up and I realized it was much more subtle and everybody has a mental health. So, Although it's kind of neat that everybody has the, the same experience of it. That's kind of interesting in itself. <laughs> True. And that's a, such a solid message too. So maybe that's, that's the <laughs> message I want to send to the world for, <laughs> for everyone. <laughs> You can listen to 15 episodes of my show. And if you remember one thing, it's that. (laughs) (laughs) It's a good takeaway. Obviously, you've already disclosed that you've been sober for two and a half years. And the theme for today is sobriety. But it's also like addiction, sobriety, and creativity. So before the break, can you let us know a little bit more about what brought you to choose that topic? Yeah, I think I chose addiction and sobriety and creativity because it's so close to my heart and like so fascinating to me the connections that are that are there between addiction and creativity and sobriety and creativity and um how they kind of intertwine really is important to me and is a big part of my own life as a creative person who also deals with addiction that makes sense and i'm looking forward to hearing a little bit more about how they're intertwined for you so without further ado let's take a quick break and we'll come back for the real conversation welcome back everyone we are still with ash we're talking about addiction sobriety and creativity. So one of the first thing that you kind of told me when we talked about this at first is how you see that a lot of people who struggle with addiction are creative people and sort of like vice versa. A lot of creative people struggle with addiction. How have you seen that in your life? How did that play a part for you? I think I've experienced that from the being in my active addiction side, where in artist communities like it's often a party scene that's just kind of how it is even if you go to poetry readings now they're poetry slams that are at bars right Mm -hmm. that are late into the night and um yeah and there's just a rock star lifestyle that's associated with artists kind of in any genre that they're in so that's kind of the connection that i experienced it through in my active addiction And then in sobriety, a big part of my experience with the link between the two is meeting people 
either at AA meetings or in treatment who are incredibly creative and kind of like struggling through it. There were some writers in a that I had in a group while I was in treatment that just blew my mind. I mean, they, they were amazingly talented and they'd never been to school for it or anything. Um, I have my English degree. So I was like, my jaw was on the ground. I was like, wow, this, this guy, he can like really, um, really stunningly talented, but who knows where he is now. His living circumstances just weren't ideal to support someone to stay sober. So that's kind of how I have experienced how it, how they intertwine. There's also lots of creatives who are sober and are quite quiet about it. So we don't hear much of it. They're quiet about being sober. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's quite a personal journey often. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So we don't, don't hear much about it, which I think is too bad on some levels, but totally understandable that they want to keep their own, uh, their own lives to themselves. Is there a stigma in any of those platforms? Like, is there a stigma in the sober community to be an artist? Or is there a stigma in the art community to be sober? I would say in both. I think perhaps more so in the artist community to be sober. I think it's still seen as quite an odd choice, an odd way to live to be to be sober. So people are still a little bit thrown off when you're like oh I I don't uh, I don't drink for for myself and uh yeah it's definitely still a little bit ostracizing to be that person who is who is sober at an event or a meeting you've probably experienced that going to an art gallery even maybe your book publishing these are social places and in my brain as soon as I think about an art exhibit or any sort of thing I see those little waiters, you know, bringing alcohol to everyone. So that's probably happened to you to have to refuse. Yeah, totally. It is for sure. And I mean, the the flip side of it is that things are getting, things are getting a bit better and that's really refreshing. Really, I think a big accessibility thing is just to have a non-alcoholic option. So even like going to queer events and now you will see more like having a ginger beer on tap that's like non-alcoholic so you can just have like a pint in hand that's like not drinking it's like something simple like that could be really helpful that i'm seeing more and more which is nice so you're coming from the idea that having non-alcoholic option is one great way to accommodate and obviously i come more from the gaiman's world where there are very few spaces that are designed to be sober. Is that something that you're craving for? Like creative spaces that are not only is there one or two good options, I'm thinking a bit of like a vegetarian restaurant. Like there are more and more restaurants uh, that have a vegetarian option or two that's like decent. But for me as a vegetarian, I love going to a restaurant that was like, ooh, this whole space was created for me. You know, people who drink they can take a night off. Yeah, absolutely. I hundred percent think that would be a beautiful, beautiful thing, As, especially at the intersection of being queer and being sober, which is like, I find very few spaces or I don't even, I can't even think of a space that is like both queer and artistic and sober all at the same time. There is, there is actually really few. I know like at Pride, there's like a sober zone. But like that does not compensate for the rest <laughs> of the year, for sure. Yeah. 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 
If you listen to this, create more sober spaces. Do it. <laughs> um, so there is something to say, and I think those are your words, that artists do get sober and then their work maybe get more organized and then they move forward and then they get recognized and then that comes with social activities and that brings alcohol. Have you experienced that yourself or have you seen that? Um, I've heard those stories, I think, mostly. I haven't experienced it much myself. Partly that could be because of COVID and there just hasn't <laughs> been a lot of social <laughs> um, interactions. But uh, it's definitely like a story that's out there in the like group consciousness. I'm haunted by The Lost Weekend, which was written in 1940-something by Charles Jackson. And he writes the story of a binge long weekend of drinking and he does this really brilliant job of it um but he did it because he because he got sober he was able to write the book and then mm -hmm. he kind of rose to fame and then crashed and burned and had a very sad life afterwards and then i read that book while i was in treatment and something about it like rattles around in my brain pride can be a really hard thing for people in sobriety and it, like you get your ego going and it um, can be too much and you think that maybe you're cured or you don't need to worry about being sober anymore because you're this, I don't know, big shot movie star or you're like a, a writer now. I'm not an alcoholic. And it's definitely something that, that happens a lot. And it's, um, and it's a shame. And I think that part of it is because there's not a lot of room made for people to be sober. Yeah, and I'm even hearing there's not a lot of ways to celebrate. Yeah. Without substances. Like I'm not I'm not sober. And often when I think like, oh, I'm gonna celebrate something, immediately I see like the champagne or the going out. And like society made me that way, so it's not my fault. <laughs> <laughs> totally. <laughs> I know I lean really heavily on food. I'm like, if I'm gonna celebrate, I'm like, I need a cake. <laughs> But yeah, there's not a lot of ways to celebrate that don't involve drinking. Yeah. yeah, drinking now almost feels like a reward. And now your reward for you is cake. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Maybe my reward is going to be human contact yeah. and internal validation. How great would that be? Yeah, sitting with my positive feelings about myself. I mean, that, that would be good. Be good. <laughs> that sounds so great. <laughs> we talked about this stigma of being a creator and being sober and vice versa. The narrative of the creative person using drugs or alcohol is so huge in every single movie. And I know one that people were really angry about was the um, a documentary about Amy Winehouse where sort of like her whole creative side was put aside to only talk about her drug addictions. So yeah, in a public mentality, you know, addictions and creativity is very linked. But I know you told me that because of your addiction, your creative side was taken less seriously. So how did that work for you? I think that a lot of times I was just seen as um, bohemian or like free spirited or even like a party girl, which is problematic in several different ways because I don't really identify as feminine but I was kind of had these labels that were an excuse that the people around me would use for my addictive behaviors and it like also came with a persona of kind of this artsy self but no one was interested in the artistic side 
they were really just interested in kind of like this version of me that was like wild or fun or free. And in my addiction, I would use that. That was convenient for me, for sure, because I could just lean into it and, and, and use more. But it totally ate away at my creative self because it became just kind of a label or a shield rather than a, a part of my reality. It was kind of like a false wall to, to keep people, people kind of believing this pretense. And they would because it's like, um, I feel like everybody needs to know that person who's like the one you would invite when you want a really wild time or something. So you were that person. People were inviting you to party for that party side, but not so much for the art side. Yeah. Yeah. I think that it was in some ways easier to want the the more free-spirited bohemian self than the actual creative person who is like really struggling. So like one was easier to deal with. Towards the end of my addiction, I knew I needed two days sober in order to write, but that was like a completely unachievable goal. But I would continue to try to reach it unsuccessfully over and over. At that time, it was difficult to get two days sober to write. And yet that label of this artsy person was still attached to you. Yeah. Meanwhile, with no one really checking in to be like, oh, have you actually, you know, written anything in a year? <laughs> yeah. And that's interesting. Um, are you still a creative person when you've been blocked on your creativity for a year? I mean, my sense is probably yes, but look at what's preventing you from creating. Yeah. Yeah. I think that like the best that anyone would kind of expect from me was things to not go poorly. That was like the best. And I was like the most guilty of thinking that way about myself. But it was something something about that like bohemian tragic creative that just kept being created in my relationships and myself. That must have not been easy to let go of that label, not only for you, but also for other people. It really, it really wasn't. Yeah, my life was in a pretty big mess by the time I was ready to, to really let it go because, because I felt my life was at stake. But I was really holding on to it tightly to this idea that that's, that's who I am. I am this, this free-spirited bohemian person. Do you still have some of that in you? I don't. It's interesting. I think that something in sobriety clicked and I was like, I can be free-spirited and be sober. And I think that looking at my life with some clarity and seeing that like it wasn't free-spirited it was just a hot mess like that was just a label that was an, an excuse <laughs> um <laughs> was like wait a minute <laughs> no. maybe this is not what free-spirited is when i really look at it <laughs> yeah totally it was like actually maybe i would do a much better job of accomplishing that not like wasted and then i was right with that and then trying it out has proved to be effective i'm like oh yeah no you you, you can still that's a very powerful thing to hear you say. The most that people expected of me, including myself, was to not be a complete disaster. Yeah, it's like a good day. <laughs> and it's almost hard because I've obviously only met you like a week ago. <laughs> so yeah. It's almost hard for me now with the person I see in front of me to imagine that this is what you thought of yourself and other people thought of you. So Aww. I guess you came a long way. <laughs> yeah, I hope so. That's sweet. <laughs> 
So we can't really have a podcast about mental health and queerness without, you know, diving a little bit into growing up. I think we made a lot of jokes about it that nowadays, when as soon as our mutual friend talked about you, I was like, this person sounds amazing. I want to meet them right away, like a sober person that's creative, that's writing about their experience through like poems. That's, I really want that. But I'm pretty sure that as a kid, being queer and creative did not bring that reaction to most people. <laughs> kind of, no, it went over like a lead balloon, really. It just... <laughs> Is it almost like weird to hear now that's a person that's cool and that I want in my life? Yeah, yeah, totally. I uh, I definitely just never would associate myself with cool. I've been <laughs> firmly detached from that for sure. I like grew up in a tiny town. I grew up in Tweed. This is a town of one thousand people, um, oh God. and it was very rural. And, uh, and I was like very queer, like, like you can see like pictures of me as a kid and you're like, oh no, <laughs> like, there's one where I'm like standing beside my brother and I look like his like younger brother and my family was actually fairly lefty. So they were like very open to me being queer and happy about it. But the community around me was not, not as interested. No. I mean, it helps to have a supporting family, but the one thing you don't really want in a small town is to stand out for being queer in school. Yeah, it wasn't great. And I I had learning disabilities to add on to that. So like I didn't thrive in school. I was a few years behind. So I was kind of like had some layers of freakishness going on, I guess. It's kind of like the first thing I learned about myself was that I was a freak. That's like, that's where I started building my identity was as the other in the room and is that label of freak at all related with that label of like bohemian not taken seriously artist totally like i don't i don't care about you and your social structures <laughs> you've never liked me anyway kind of feeling to it for sure it was probably a very isolating way to grow up you've put that label of freak that didn't develop in that label of bohemian. I don't, I don't give a shit kind of <laughs> character. Did that at all play a role in your addiction? For sure. I think that isolation was something that I became unhealthily comfortable with. I can remember like wandering the schoolyard all alone every recess and just like trying to avoid fighting with people. I'm just like kind of wandering around all by myself and feeling lonely. Eventually I, I saw it as kind of like my superpower instead of as something that was hard. I was like, I don't need anybody. And that's not true, but it was like a coping mechanism I developed to deal with my reality of people not really knowing me because I was afraid to come out and just not being able to connect with people because they saw me as this freak. To which I feel I've reclaimed the word freak, by the way. I feel I feel happy with the word freak now. So you still today identify with the word freak, but in a proud way? Yeah, yeah. How did you manage to go from blocking everyone out to letting people in? Did that happen after you got sober? That's a really good question. I think that a big part of me figuring out letting people in was a good idea is from having really healthy relationships with wonderful women who <laughs> I let in. And I was like, wow, this was actually a really good idea and has been like a really positive force of my life. And I kind of didn't expand that past my romantic relationships. I was like, I will let this one person in, but that that's it. 
And then I got sober and I was like, maybe I could extend this rule to some other people too. (laughs) (laughs) And now, interestingly, probably being creative and queer in a bigger town than Tweed uh, (laughs) probably gives you access to a great community. Yeah. Yeah. A really, really rad community of people. It's interesting how like full journey, those things that made you an outcast made you block people out. But really what you needed was community in order to heal. And now you've found that pretty amazing community. And I think that there's this gratitude that comes with having to have looked for it so hard that is really nice. I find I don't tend to take it for granted. I'm like really amazed by the connections I make with people still, which is a nice feeling. Yeah, which links back to your book of you earlier in the recording being kind of all amazed that people are reacting well (laughs) to your book. Yeah, totally. It's mind-blowing. So growing up in Tweed, probably then, I don't know, I'm maybe I'm putting words, but I'm imagining the basic story of then leaving that small town for, I want to say, university. I'm telling all the cliches right now. Yep, uh, totally. <laughs> and then probably coming in a bigger town, I want to assume, Toronto. and. I ended up in Thunder Bay okay. because I, I thought it was a city. And it was like, I'm going to a bigger town. Bit of an interesting choice. But I, I have a very soft spot in my heart for Thunder Bay. That queer community is like um, very tight and very awesome. So and accepting of everyone because it's well, very small. Well, shout out to the queer community of Thunder Bay. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> thank you. And then that's, I'm guessing, with all the quote unquote problems Growing up, that's probably where alcohol got into your life. And now I'm interested into getting sober, getting more clarity. How was that process for you? Um, Painful at first, uh, for sure. Sometimes there's this idea that you're going to get sober and it's just going to be like, great, because now you're not drinking. But there's actually this really painful transition where you were using alcohol to numb everything out. And then now you're feeling everything. And it's a lot. As I said, my life was quite a mess by the time I finally got it together to get sober. So you kind of take the blinders off when things are the most a disaster and you kind of look around at the rubble. For me, it was quite a lot to kind of process all of the destruction that I caused over the past decade. Yeah, it's a lot to take in. Yeah, and it's and I'm really thankful that I went to treatment because that was it was really helpful to have a safe kind of place to fall apart and a safe place to sift through all of the feelings and thoughts and changes that were going on. It's nothing like having a counselor down the hall. I know. I have one everywhere I go. (laughs) Even better. (laughs) I love this image of using alcohol to not look at anything and then removing it. So now you're kind of forced to look at everything at once. Is that what your book's about? Every day discovering a new part of who you are? Yeah, I think there's lots of moments in Run Riot where I'm overwhelmed. And that's, I think that that's great that that's in there because that's really like the theme for my early spot day was definitely that I was like, oh my God, there's a lot. There's just a lot. Everything is a lot. But also there's like these bright, shiny pieces of really, really good things that you can finally kind of see. Like for me, writing poetry. Mm -hmm. 
So with that clarity comes the ability to distinguish between what is going well and what is actually really harmful. And being able to feel your feelings for the first time, you can decide who you want to be, which is a lot, but also really, really important. Obviously, for publishing a book, there's more than just writing it. There's, you know, almost two years of behind the scene work before it gets published. How is that for you in a creative process further down your sobriety to be almost forced constantly to go back and look at those words from your early sobriety? Was that useful? Was that triggering a little bit of both? Maybe maybe a little bit of both, mostly useful and kind of fascinating. I mean, one thing that I learned is to be curious about myself and my emotions and the poems are really emotional. It's interesting to look back and be like, oh, wow. I really see how I was coming at this from this particular perspective strongly. And now I feel differently or I wouldn't say that or, or that's changed in me even over just the, the year of space, year and a bit of space that it's been. Mm -hmm. It's kind of nice because I'm getting to a place where I can look at Run Riot and, and feel a lot of compassion for the person that I was in going through what I was going through and just be like, wow. You know, you, you did okay. <laughs> yeah, it's such a cliche in the grand world of mental health, but having compassion for your past self is just so powerful. There is not another way to describe it. And you had a very tangible way. Yeah. To have that. Yeah. <laughs> I think creativity is very healing. And obviously, I assume that you do too. So I want to hear you talk about that more. I do agree. Creativity is incredibly healing for for me my own experience i like this idea that sobriety is a process of becoming more yourself because i think a lot of people think of it as a getting better which is like what does better mean and it's very arbitrary whereas becoming more yourself just feels better to me um and i think that creativity like informs who we are it's like that, that expressing ourselves we become more ourselves and we learn more about ourselves so when I'm writing a poem, I find out things about myself that maybe I didn't know before writing it. That's a really neat process. Every once in a while, it's a really scary process. I'm like, what? Um, <laughs> whoa. But most of the time, it's just really, really neat. I love this idea of becoming more yourself instead of becoming better, because if you become better, then you need to be perfect, whereas yeah. becoming more yourself is to accept that you, and I say you, but like me <laughs> and all of us, accepting that we are flawed individuals and we don't have to be perfect at everything. And that probably includes you don't have to be perfect at sobriety and you don't have to be perfect at creativity. Yeah. Yeah. 100%. And the creativity I find that's the most healing is the, the very imperfect. It's the one that's the more you, less perfect, more you, and is like the really good healing stuff. Accepting flaws is probably such an important part of getting sober. Yeah, totally. And that was one of the really interesting parts about kind of sitting with one riot because I didn't want to do too much editing because it's a memoir. So, and I want it to reflect that time, mm -hmm. not, you know, a year and a bit later, me who's like, oh, I'm going to tweak that to make it sound more like, like, nope. It has to be what it is <laughs> because that's the truth of it. <laughs> so that was a really neat 
moment of acceptance of getting to practice it. <laughs> yeah, definitely, for sure. <laughs> You've also talked about how you getting sober had helped people around you. And even more so now, being a published author, it, it's helping more people to realize that maybe they need to make changes also. Yeah, which has been really, really powerful for me. Going from that person like we talked about who was just like uh, like bohemian, like not being attached to anything, to coming to the understanding that my decisions can affect other people and affect people positively. That I that I can that I can make a choice that someone else can look at and be like, oh, that was really amazing. My mom has has gotten sober since I got sober, which is pretty amazing. I'm so proud of her for doing that. Mm-hmm. And my siblings have also taken like a really serious look at the way that they use things. And I'm so like fascinated and proud of everyone who's kind of like in my family looking at it because both of my grandfathers, it wouldn't say alcoholism on their death certificate, but it was definitely an influence. So it runs through our family pretty heavily. I'm kind of the first person really to be sober in my immediate circle mm-hmm. and that it's been been, been kind of taken up as, and embraced is like, oof, makes me want to cry. It is really 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 powerful yeah that's really powerful it's great and i'm sure even your book is going to also help people on that note let's have a short break and we'll be back for the last section of the podcast We are back for the last section of today's episode. And this last section is just a few tips for people who may be struggling with, with alcohol or their creativity. So we've already named a few of those. I think one of the most powerful one you said is learning to let people in. And for you, it was letting those incredible women into your life. We've talked about finding ways to accept yourself and accepting your own flaws, which is a lot easier said than done. It's very easy for us to sit here and talk about that. But that was uh, probably an ongoing two and a half year long journey for you. Definitely. What else has helped you through that process, both for sobriety and for your creativity? I think that finding a creative outlet that naturally comes to you rather than the thing that you think you should do is really important. Because on uh, on days that aren't going well, you want something that you can just lean into really naturally. And it's about the process of doing it, not about the outcome, not about having a beautiful whatever. It's about how you feel creating something that really matters. For me, I, I've written poetry a lot throughout my life, but I always thought it was kind of lame and like not a cool thing to do for some reason. But when I got sober, I was like, just stopped caring about it because it felt so good to do it because I knew it was so good for me to do that it literally got carried away with the process. Yeah, it was the process that you liked and not the fact that you've produced that beautiful thing. Yeah, absolutely. I never asked you that question. The the way I interpreted your book was 90 poems in 90 days. It means like one poem was written every day, but maybe that's not the fact. But I'm wondering, was there a point like at day 75, where you were like, I'm over this, I want to give up. How did you find balance with wanting to continue on that process, but also needing to take some breaks? 
I found it really easy to keep doing. I actually, I still write three poems in the morning, every morning. And it just, I, I started doing it just before I went into treatment. And then I got more and more into it as I, as I went. So for me, it was like a, a part of the day that I knew I would, I would get to be myself to do that process that I enjoyed the feeling of. I knew that I, I had done something with my day that I felt was meaningful right off, off the bat. Yeah. And it still does. So. Yeah, that's amazing. <laughs> and I think you've named it. I think it's about enjoying the process and not hoping for a certain result. Because if you're focused on results, it's never going to be what you want it to be. Whereas if you're working on the process, then you're in the moment. Is there anything else that has helped you? I think like really the huge thing that changed my life was the moment when I asked for help. Because like we talked about, I came to this false conclusion in my childhood that I didn't need help, that that was, that was weakness because I wasn't going to get help. So I, asking for it was just nonsense. But really what changed my life in such a huge positive way was finding the humility to be like, no, I, I need help. I can't, I can't do this on my own. And we all do. We're like humans. Need, we all need help. Everybody does. That's what it's like to be human. It goes back to the way you answered, and I made a joke that everyone's answering the first question the same way, but everybody needs help because mental health is not just those giant mental health problem. It's the small things in life and just oiling the machine properly. Have you found there was a lot of taboo about asking for help? I found it was hard. There was like this, I just like not done it. It was like sworn off in my life. I was like avoid at all costs. And then I finally hit a tipping point and I was pushed to my bottom and I asked for help. I, one morning, Kate asked me if I was just someone who would stop, uh, just didn't drink. And I was like, no, I need help. And since I said those words out loud, my life has totally changed. And there's been so much help, which has blown my mind. Since first uttering those words, I think in my head, I, I assumed there would be, it would go into a vacuum. I need help, which is like float away and there would be no help. But the actuality is that there's been layers and layers of help and so many lovely, hopeful people that it's been pretty, pretty amazing. I'm hearing a little bit in what you're saying that you did that process for yourself. You've asked help for yourself. There was not like help forced down your throat. It was you asking for it and then being ready to accept it when it came. And that's definitely important. That's the dynamic that really works, right? It's the moment when you're finally ready and you ask and then it's there. Yeah, I was randomly having this conversation yesterday with some people about how before I was trying to get sober for my partner, for my parents, for my job. And there's value in that. But it's, you know, <laughs> it also has to come a little bit from oneself. It's so fascinating, too, because it's the opposite of what you might expect, because addiction is so selfish. It's just like it's the ultimate in selfishness. You're just like, what do I want right now? That's it. And and then it's like the the thing that's really going to help you out of that dark place is just, just be look a little deeper at that selfishness and be like, what do you really want? And if you if you can be honest with yourself and humble enough, ask for help. We've talked about things that have helped you with the sobriety, but are there things that help you with the creativity? Choosing role models that are people who are living lives that I would actually want to live. When I was younger, 
I would have writers maybe as a role model who's like, you know, Bukowski kind of thing or like Leonard Cohen who like are eloquent writers and really talented, but one, I don't, they're not real people. I don't know them. They're not, you know, these are just figures and they're um, tragic, right? There's like, so if you really look at their lives, you might not want, you don't want to actually live like Bukowski. That's madness. And I just never really posed that question. But now I kind of, I have role models in my life who are like real people who you can like ask questions or like reach out to or investigate how they do that. That's been a really game changer for me. And I think is like a huge life skill to be able to pick like real people who have lives that you might really enjoy. We've mentioned it briefly, but there's this romanticizing of dramatic artists that exist and it's probably because it makes better movies the nice guy in the love triangle you know in all those teenage drama he's the nice guy but it's not fun to write tv for him <laughs> it's probably it's a little bit the same with the art scene so choosing role models that are real and not romanticizing the dramatic part of their life that does sound like a really good advice yeah take the fantasy kind of out of it any last words I don't think so. I feel like I've talked a lot. I don't know. <laughs> thank you so much for taking this journey with me. Oh, thank you for having me. It's been super fun. I, I love the format of just chatting. It's so, it's so nice. It was such a delight to get to know you tonight in a way that I really didn't know you earlier. And I'm really hoping that hopefully soon when we're allowed to go outside, our path will cross. Yeah, that would be positively lovely. I would thoroughly enjoy that. Ash, if people want to find you or even better, buy your book, <laughs> how do they connect with you? And so you can buy my book through Caitlin Press, the Caitlin Press website. There will be a link in the description below. You can also go to my website, which is ashwinters.com. And uh, I have uh, all the information about the book and reviews and some links for other places to buy it there as well. Awesome. Well, obviously, I'll put links for all of that in the description. And thank you for coming on again. Thank you so much for having me. It's been really, really lovely. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Uh, do not hesitate to give me a rating or a comment and to subscribe to this podcast. If you want to stay in contact with me, follow the Mental Health Much Instagram account. And until the next episode, please keep talking about mental health to everyone as much as you can and keep safe. Ba -ba -da, ba -ba -da.